You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drum. Beat out Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio. 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. If our lazy producer Kelly Whitworth is bothered, will you be podcasting? I love podcasting these shows and uh, letting people know all about our wicked guests that we have every week. Yeah. Some other interesting person that we have, like today. Yeah. Too. Yeah, like Kelly. You know, it's just extraordinary the podcasting you do. I don't actually look at it because I can't be bothered. But other people—that's a shame. T- but other people tell me it's extraordinarily good. That's and, good. And there's great photos. Yeah. And, and the occasional good content. Occasional, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the content's mine. The photos oh, are yours. That's okay, what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, it's we've very got, good. we've got what hundreds, hundreds of podcasts. Up oh, there. I don't know. I think I started a couple of years ago. So yeah. however long that is, probably over a hundred. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Now I'm going to say a cheerio, which we've never done on this program, to our previous producer Dale, who I saw last night, and Dale is doing hydrotherapy or driving to hydrotherapy. And listens to the program. So hello, Dale. Hello, Dale. <laughs> I don't know what hydrotherapy is. It's when you paddled in a pool. Ah, oh, ah, oh, yeah. When yep, you're yep. injured and you know you're trying. Oh, yeah, good. Good yeah. on you, Dale. That's great. Yeah, it's pool paddling. Pool paddling, <laughs> yeah. yes. Now, we have a guest, Lana Turner-Wolf. How are you, Lana? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. <laughs> now, just to get this right, what's the name on your birth certificate? Oh, mm. something completely different, which I'm not telling you. Oh. Whoa. Now you got us intrigued. Now, why Lana? Well, actually, Lana is my birth name, but mm. it was because um, my father's Fijian, my mother's Scottish. I was born in Australia, and it was a kind of hybridization of Leilani, which Leilani. is a yep. Pacific Mm-hmm. Name. That's nice. And wolf? Wolf is because I was once upon a thousand years ago married. Mm-hmm. And Wolford was the name. Wolford. 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 Yep. And I had kids and I wanted to keep that connection to the children but not have my ex-husband's name. And so I cut off the ORD. Mm-hmm. And it's Wolf. Wolf. I thought it was a nice kind of untamed mm. name mm. and all of my publishing and everything is under that name so I just keep it. Right. Yeah. So you can well, legally chop a name in half like that. You can do what you like. You can do what you like. Is that right? Yeah. It, well, as long as you're not trying to, you know. Defraud people. Defraud people. Yeah, you yeah. can. You can, you can change your name tomorrow if you went down to the birth. You know, you could, you could call yourself oh, Kelly yeah, like Whitworth. Cho- you could choose your name, yeah. yeah of course yeah. you choose yeah. your name. And you don't even have to do it officially. As long as you're known by that name, mm. it's an accepted mm-hmm. name. It's not an alias. Mm. You've got to be known by that name. So Lana Wolf. Yeah. You know Wolf. I saw you before you walked into the studio. You were lugging it around, the biggest bike I've seen in the universe. What were you doing with that? Oh, I cycled here from my workplace. I cycle everywhere. Mm. I love cycling. It's good for the environment, but also it just makes me feel 
you know, like I'm sailing through the world. It mm. gives me time to think. It just makes my life better. Cycling in the Melbourne CBD. <laughs> well. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> the cycling in the Melbourne CBD is not quite as fun, but no. cycling, yeah, yes. Yeah, you know, car doors, exhaust fumes. <laughs> you know, Buses and at night. Now, you're one of these crazy cyclists I see at night dressed black with no lights on their bicycle? No, I have lights. I have Good. fancy lights and mm. I have the very beautiful, sexy, bright yellow vest and, Ooh. you know. No orange for you, just yellow. Yellow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do you have a, a little yellow strap across your bum or something? No, but I have a big yellow vest that I wear. Right down. Yeah. yeah. How about yellow? How about little lights on your shoes? I don't have lights on my shoes. No, no. Well, mm. hopefully you'll never end up as a patient of mine. That's yeah. all I can say. So be careful out there. Mm. I got doored once. It was her- horrific yeah. on Swan Street going past the um, <laughs> Corner Hotel, is it? Yeah. yeah I got doored. At about 8pm in the dark and I had a bruise on my thigh for about five years afterwards, like deep. You could still, it was oh, faint, but yeah, it was there. Yeah. And it put me off riding for a while, mm. but eventually I got back. Oh, isn't, isn't that a nice story? She eventually yeah, got back on her bicycle. Absolutely. I love cycling too. Yeah, mm. yeah, I know, you're both sick. Now, <laughs> look, I used to love cycling. No, I actually never cycled in my life. <laughs> you're, you're, you're telling the truth, aren't you? Well, you want to know why? It's quite a it's quite a sad story. In uh, World War Two, my uncle, he was thirteen. He was cycling madly down the road in um, Sicily, and he got hit by an American troop truck, and he died. And my mother never let me cycle. It's that simple. And I'm too old to learn. Am I too old to learn, Lana? I don't think anyone's too old to learn. Really? You know they have trikes? Yeah, I know they have trikes, <laughs> but come on. Me on a trike. Yeah. It's yeah, like me should. riding a, a... You could have a oh, great big basket on the back and you could do no, whatever you wanted, no, take no, up the space. No, no, I used to ride motorbikes once and I'm not going to ride a three-wheeler. That's 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 disgusting. <laughs> now, now, getting back to your life, mm. where were you born? I was born in Parramatta, otherwise known as Baramata. Baramata. And how did your parents meet up? You know, actually at the Parramatta Hospital. At the hospital, she wasn't a nurse, was she? Yes, my mother was a nurse. <laughs> um, but my my Fijian grandmother had and migrated over with the family, and my Fijian grandmother was the, um, I guess, top midwife there, like the, mm. and my aunts. And my father uh, all went through nursing school there back in the days when it was practice and training, or training in practice, and so was my mother, and that's how they met. Oh, so what's a love story? Initially. Initially. <laughs> right. Are they still alive? They are. Mm. I haven't spoken to my mother for many a decade, but mm. yes. It's not unusual. It's not unusual, so we won't go down that little path, not at all. Right, so what was it like growing up? Did you grow up in Parramatta or...? No, I didn't. My early years were in the Blue Mountains mm-hmm. and then uh, actually moved to Ipswich in Queensland. Uh, before we get to that city, which I'm very familiar with. Mm. As a, I mean, what year were you born? Mid-70s. Mid-70s, yeah. Mm. Well, I was living in Ipswich in the mid-70s. I know all about it. Now, we're going back, going back. To the Blue Mountains. You go you go to school in the Blue Mountains? Yeah. What was that like? I think my life in the Blue Mountains, I was very young and so I have a very idealised view of it. Um, I was, you know, this little wild kid with wild hair, mm. you know, going, making their own bushwalking tracks to and from school catching tadpoles, swimming in creeks and waterfalls and BMX bike riding everywhere. That is idealised. You're not making it up. That, that, is, that, is, that is an ideal childhood. You can't get better than that. Mm. And obviously you weren't abused or anything. You're just, just a child. No, but I think that it was at that point, talking about how I've become how I am, mm. that I first started noticing difference. What do you mean? And I mean that by, you know, growing up with my mother and my stepfather and my white siblings as a person of colour, it was at that stage where I started noticing people making comments. And they were very 
passive comments, but like, oh, look at your lovely brown skin. I bet you don't have to wear sun cream. Or, oh, look at your lovely curls. You know, women pay m- lots of money to go and get hair perms like that. And mm. so even at that very young age, and it was very idealised, um, and I love it, I started to know that difference, which led to mm. the person that I can't became. Big change. Mm. First of all, you've got a Fijian father, and all of a sudden you tell him you've got white siblings and a stepfather. What happened? Well, um, I think that, you know, what happens in many places, particularly at that time, racism happened, sexism happened, Australia's, um, I guess, cultural norms happened. Mm. So your parents split up and... Very, very, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any contact with your siblings? No. None at all, no. right. So that's fascinating, fascinating. Mm. So when you moved to Ipswich, mm. how old were you? I was about 11. Right, so you're still in primary school. Yeah. Right. And what was that like? You know, back in the 80s, you could still ride your BMX and so forth everywhere, but... It was when I was first able to articulate racism. Um, being in Ipswich, which is known um, for its attitudes, for its attitudes, mm. and the assumption that people make around right. my ethnicity. So everyone assumed that I was Aboriginal, mm. and so the racism that I experienced was very overt, and it was based on that assumption that I'm Aboriginal. Yeah, stereotypes. And so it was the first time that I got to really articulate that. Um, at the same time, there was, there was opportunity um, for me to figure out how I wanted to respond to this. Mm-hmm. So what high school did you go to? Uh, St Mary's. St Mary's. Was that a co-ed or? No. All girls? Yeah. So I went to St Mary's for the first couple of years and then I went to Oxley College near the city. Right. Well, going, going back to St Mary's, what was, did you find when you were in St Mary's that, uh, I'm not going to ask you a difficult question here because you're smiling <laughs> at me. I <laughs> uh, see. So you've got to pick up the cues. Last week I had to do a telephone interview. I couldn't pick up any cues. <laughs> but this week I've picked up the cues. I'm just trying to figure out how much of a troublemaker I should, how now, much of a or, troublemaker I should. Well, share. obviously you moved from St Mary's to Oxley. So obviously there were issues, but we won't look at the issues. Is there anything you found at St Mary's that in your development that you were kind of confident in? doing you know the type of school work you were doing or your personality or Mm. I think that there was lots of opportunities I think that I started debating um there and doing very well um arts I did a lot of art and went on to embed that in my practice and um I guess I, I built a confidence in my own ability to be able to problem solve and um, I'm not an advocate for the way the education system is now, um, but certainly I do, I am very much, I call myself a, a pracademic. I do um, a lot of research and a lot of that kind of stuff, which... I guess I gained confidence there that I was capable and I was smart. So it was a development, mm. which is good. So why did you go to Oxley? Now you can tell us the, the dirt. <laughs> um, I went to Oxley because I wasn't flourishing as much as I would like and I was a bit of a troublemaker. I didn't get expelled from St Mary's, but I certainly pushed all of the boundaries. Um, what type of boundaries? So, for example... Um, and I was having a lot of trouble at home as well. But, for example, I um, I noticed one of the things that I noticed was this was back in the day when teachers still smoked, my principal still smoked, smoked in school grounds. Um, I was, you know, students weren't allowed to smoke, but there was nothing in the student handbook to say you couldn't smoke legally. There was no laws to say you couldn't smoke. There was only laws to say that you couldn't buy cigarettes. <laughs> And so I walked down to church one day smoking 
got called up to the office and my was like, well, it's not in the student handbook. You mm. smoke. I didn't do anything illegal. You can't prove that I bought them. Mm. Kelly, you, you, know what we, you know what we call these type of people? Um the um, uh, authority deficit no. disorder. No, 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 no. We call them bush lawyers. <laughs> bush lawyers. <laughs> They're everywhere yeah. in Queensland. Queensland is famous <laughs> for bush lawyers, and she was a young bush lawyer pushing the boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. she should have. You should have been a high court judge. Well, I went on to um, <laughs> the regional youth council and mm. representing young people in the first Australian Youth Council and I started my own first organisation there, Youth for Youth. We got a youth grant for youth. For ten thousand dollars. Youth for youth. <laughs> I love that. Um we uh, did developed you, did, did, workshops. What? We had a God, you're crazy. You yeah. should you should have just used it to go for an overseas trip. Forget <laughs> about that's what grants are for. It's for yourself. You actually used it for the youth. What's wrong with you? Are you some ethical, honest human being? I try to live by my values, yes. You try to... Oh, God, I can't stand these interviews. <laughs> Saint. Saint, Lana. We've, no, we've, 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 we've interviewed, you know, practising Catholics, sisters, priests on this program, and now we're interviewing a saint. <laughs> <laughs> so Oxley High... Was it yeah. Oxley... High or? Yeah, it was. Yeah, that, that was a pretty tough school then. Um, actually, it had a very special program for gifted students. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not suggesting you're a gifted student. So I went from year nine, at, <laughs> finishing year nine at um, St Mary's, mm. and I skipped year ten, and I did year eleven and twelve in one year at Oxley. Year oh. eleven and twelve in one year. Yeah, you yeah. can do that. Queensland education is wonderful. I remember, no, it is. I, I did all my education in Queensland initially, and uh, I was just sitting in the grade 12 class. I was doing you know, the usual shit, maths A, B, science, mm. all that. And I was looking at the history exam in the French class, and mm. I said, I can, I can do this. <laughs> and I asked the principal, I said, Can I sit for the history exam? Oh, yeah, sure, Joe. And I sat for the history exam and passed. It mm. was like that in those days. Yeah, I think um, it allowed me to. I guess push myself a little bit hmm. to think about how I weave in different knowledges, um, but also it was an incredibly multicultural school. Like it I is, don't yeah. think that it was rough, um, from my interpretation. Hmm. Hmm. I think that it possibly had a reputation because it was so multicultural. It had a lot of refugees. It had a lot of people from no, the, migrant cultures. The, the reputation would have come from the early. Late sixties, early seventies, when it was rough, there was yeah. Oxley, and I used to go to Salisbury State High School down the road, and they were rough schools, I tell you. So, child genius. It's where was all? Where was all this coming from? All this from your brain. intellectual spirit. Like, how did that form? Like, I think just trying to understand the world, trying to understand my place in the world, trying to understand where the experiences that I had. So, for example, in Ipswich and. Um, People, I guess, for example, the way that young men treated me in this kind of overtly sexualized way, Mm. is that sexism? Is that racism? Because there was this element of it is that weren't treating white girls like that. Um, You know, where is that? And I couldn't articulate it. Mm. Um, And I'm still kind of trying to articulate it now through different practices that I use and thinking about intersectionality. But at that time, I was very much driven by trying to find answers and having absolutely none, not Mm. being, you know, wanting to be smart enough, wanting to be capable enough of finding answers, but acknowledging that at that time and place, I I didn't have it and so striving towards it. Yeah, just to put it in in a very uh, vulgar sense. Oh, are you going to do that, are you? Well, look. I mean, you can intellectualise it, but it's mm. basically the, the young man's thinking, is she an easy lay or not? Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's, that, that, that incorporates your sexism, your racism. Yeah. It's all, all in that mindset, you know. But yeah. I think that mm. there was, I guess, not that – I think it's more than that, and I will continue down that path just for a moment and say not that it was, is she an easy lay, but girls of colour – 
are through the way in which we view Pacific Islander women, the way that we view other types of cultures, they are viewed in TV and so forth as overtly sexualized, and therefore mm. she must be. That's right, easy lie, yep. Yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly that, that. That's the mentality. It's the stereo. Yeah. It's stereotypes. Yeah. But did it actually people see you as a Pacific Islander or as an Aboriginal girl? I think that when I was younger, Aboriginal. But as I got to explore the world in my own time and space, being able to travel in different places, meet different people, even through the youth council and so forth. Like, for example, through the youth council, one of the people that um, I really connected with was Ifezo Fanana, who is one of the amazing people behind Briefs, um, which is an extraordinary world-touring um, boyesque, so queer circus performance. Um, but the, they're Samoan and so being able to meet them, being able to connect with them, hang out. First time I tried kava, you know, understanding Pacific culture outside of my family and, so, and hanging out with, you know, people in the broader Ipswich region. Did that you? are Pacific Islanders, I, I became more mm. acknowledged and understood well, that's right. Pacific that, Islander. In that area, there is a huge number of Pacific Islanders, huge mm. number. Your first taste of kava, what did you think? Did you think that it, it was tastes like, like dirt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You think it tastes like dirty socks. It's disgusting stuff. You bad woman, bad, bad person. So you leave high school. Where do you drift to? Queensland College of Arts. Why Queen? Look, you're an academic. Why would you waste your life going to the Queensland College of Arts? Was this at, at Seven Hills or had moved by then? Morningside. Morningside, yeah. yeah. So I guess um, artistic practice was really important to me and the way that I started facilitating and doing things, I, I was able to build that and I still do that now, yeah. Right. And what was that experience like? Well, I also had had my first child. Right. When did that happen? When I was at Oxley. Mm-hmm. So I was 16. So what was it like having been a teenage mother at Oxley? Um, well, I was, yeah, pregnant at Oxley. Um, mm. I guess, again, that those intersections, you know, of not identities but of the domains of power that intersect with your life the education system the medical system the legal system and all of those kinds of things you know it's very difficult to be so young Mm, um mm. so i was 15 when i was pregnant um to be so young to be pregnant to be a person of color um Mm. yeah it's interesting you say that because the person who uh, sings our introductory song is Margaret Roadnight, which we interviewed on in the program, and her most well-known song would be Girls in Our Town, which actually explores that concept of, you know, teenage pregnancy during that, during that era or before that in the 70s and 60s. Yeah, mm. It was a very common issue in that time. So did you have any support during that period? I mean, being six, well, 16 when you had your child, it's difficult raising a kid by yourself at that age. Yeah, I did have some support, yeah. Well, that's good. That's yeah. good. So you finished the College of the Arts? Mm-hmm. So what did you – did you major in anything? And Any? then um, photography and sculpture. Right. And then I went to Queensland University, UQ. Right. Um, and I did my bachelor's. Um, a Bachelor of Arts? Yeah. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. Political Science and Philosophy. So from College of Arts to Political Science and Philosophy. Yeah. And so my first major job, um, like real person's job... You got money. Um, <laughs> ...was... And I'd done bits and pieces that mm. combined them, but um, was working up in Indigenous communities up in far north Queensland. Uh, which communities? Barulula. Right. Um, explain so to people you can hear where, people. Yeah, explain where exactly that is. Oh, in that's North. up in the Cape area. Up in the Cape area. Yeah. In the little curve. Yes, in the, the little top. curve kind of right of Darwin. Right. And had you been in Indigenous communities before you went up there? Um, I had been 
um, but my kids are Indigenous um, and, yeah, so I've uh, had a lot ha- of Indigenous ha- 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 connections. How many kids? I have three. Three, right. Yeah. And how many kids did you have when you went up there? Um, so I started with one and ended up with two during that time. Time, right, yeah. when, when you're up there, right. And so I was working with young men in the juvenile justice system, mm-hmm. young Indigenous men, and we were using art as a way to take up space. And it was when I first started really pushing my boundaries around participation and participatory action. And so not going up there saying this is what we're going to do, but being able to go, you know, I'm here to facilitate an opportunity for us to feel like you can say your mind, you can speak, you can be whoever you want to be in the world. How do we start to do that? And so they, as young men at that time, went, well, we love graffiti. And so we started building relationships with, like, for example, the local health centre where they gave up space on walls and things where they could graffiti, they could use Indigenous language. They would do it with, um, you know, in, like, say, drawing uh, graffiti images of people and using Indigenous language to say, oh, this is an arm, this is a leg and so forth and then start working and mentoring younger people through that and learning Indigenous language together, learning what it means to be a role model for your community, for younger kids. So you're basically pushing them back into a more traditional pathway, which... You said they were were they offenders when you yeah yeah and and who are you working for? Um, it was a collaboration between um, University of Queensland, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Unit, and um, uh, Queensland government. And and how long were you up there for? So I would go backwards and forwards for what? about three years. From Brisbane, yeah, you'd fly up and down. Yeah, what a dream job. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I do the same thing now, but overseas. Oh, yeah. could you get rid of this person, Why? please? Why? Oh, well, I'm jealous already. <laughs> well, you know, when I say I do it now overseas, I go to Eastern Indonesia, where oh, you that's, know that's just the paddle right um, away. I mean, I mean, Kelly went to Sydney last week. <laughs> <laughs> where we're talking about no running water, where we're talking about remote communities. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll talk about that. So up and down, up and down. Three years, you had enough. Did you learn any of the language when you were up there? Um, I did, little bits, and I also learnt and I got to connect in with, like, you know, the women's groups mm, and learn good. traditional women's dance and just really, you know, acknowledging that to work with one part of community means you need to work with all parts of community and so being able to, to connect in and mm. be invited in and be respectful and learn. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, Torres Strait is not far from where you were means that people are familiar with Pacific Island cultures and mm. things, which made it a little bit easier. Yeah. You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. To Brisbane full time, what happens? Um, so I work in different places, but I guess um, a lot of it from there went to disability and being a part of the um, deinstitutionalisation. Right. And well, tell us about this process in Queensland. Yeah. Institu- were you involved in the deinstitutionalised yeah. process? Yes, I've got a lot of questions here, but let's. I know the theory is brilliant. But, uh, you know, I've been a doctor for 47 years and I've seen what deinstitutionalised does and doesn't do. Yeah. And I think that it is an extraordinarily complex situation that still has reverberations today. It does, yeah. Um, However, I always think that we need to take a human rights approach. What do you mean by human rights approach? That people have the right to make decisions about themselves and... Didn't you ever hear about the Queensland Aboriginal Protection Act? (laughs) I certainly did. Um, And that they should be supported to make decisions even 
if and something to that I use even today that really learnt from the disability movement is dignity of risk. That Digni- if dig- could you explain that? Yeah. So dignity of risk is an understanding that people have the right to make choices, even if they're risky choices, because they're your own choices. Oh, that's right. You know. So I get to ride my bike, even though. For some, it's very risky. Mm. Other people get to smoke, even though others think that it's risky. And people with mm. various disabilities, and I've worked through That's many right. different types, right. they get to make their own decisions, even if there's a risk. that w- To treat a person in an institutionalised way where they can't make their own decisions mm. and being really paternalistic is not abiding by a human rights perspective. That's right. If you go back to Victoria 88, I was involved in the uh, case that actually changed the law because at that particular point in time, you didn't actually have the right legally to refuse treatment, Mm. which you do today. And obviously you've got the right to make a bad choice. And uh, the people who are looking after you, you with your disability, your personal care attendants, can... uh, if you've made a bad choice and you're obviously intellectually able to make that bad choice, they can't actually do anything to prevent you from carrying out that bad choice. And that is basically the right to make mistakes or the right to make choices as you see fit. And has that changed in Queensland? I'm not sure of that. I haven't lived and worked in Queensland for about 15 years. Right, right. Um, So I'm not sure of the legal, current legal standings in Queensland. But certainly um, I was working for things like I led the Consumer Participation Unit for Queensland Alliance, which was a big body of community mental health, Mm. Um, working for Department of Communities Mental Health Branch, working for Endeavour Foundation, which was intellectual disabilities, and the rollback of those day centres into... Um, supported community engagement Mm. um, as well as the Cerebral Palsy League. So I did a variety Mm. of things, Mm. working with a variety of different disability organisations. Yeah, the trouble in our field is that um, we speak a lot of jargon and people Mm. don't understand what we talk about basically, you know, and that's why I'm I'm asking questions to Mm. expand it. So Yeah, and and you're absolutely right and I think that what – I have been successful with in my life is practicing and modeling, not so much talking about it. I do publish and I do do those things, but I have the extreme opportunity of being able to work in communities for a really long time and working alongside community members um, so that we're practicing, we're modeling, we're making mistakes. You know, we're getting to a point where they're like, we don't need you anymore. Yeah, piss off. Yeah. And that. What? Well, that, that's very important. They've yeah. grown up. They don't need mummy anymore. And Well, they've learnt that um, what works for them in terms of the rejuvenation of their own communities. Yeah. Mm. So what made you leave Queensland 15 years ago? Um, Newman and... Mr Newman? The, the Premier? Um, oh, come on. Cutting 15,000 jobs, including um, my entire department. Was uh, so what was your department? Um, so, Department of Communities Mental Health Branch. Right. So, obviously, you weren't needed, were you? No. They decided that it wasn't needed because they were going to build the Mental Health Commission. That's right. Which yeah. they... Never did, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And so, you left as a protest or you just wanted a new life? Um, so, I left because I needed to find a job. Oh, well, that, that's a good reason. Yeah. And you had three kitties then you were looking after? I had three kids. Yeah. Um, I was divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very contentious. Um, my mother had supported my ex-husband in gaining custody. Mm. I was a... No wonder you don't talk to her. Um, you know, I mm. was doing things like on the side, uh, one of the leaders of the abortion rights movement in Queensland, because in Queensland at the time, That's the right. couple in Cairns was um, convicted or of charged with abortion-related um, offences and so forth. And so um, even though I smart, intelligent, had a good job, um, mm. you know, actively engaged in my community, um, Obviously so, not in the right way. So basically you paid a personal price for your political convictions. My political and personal convictions. I'd mm. also come out as a lesbian. Right. 
Oh, you came out as a lesbian. <laughs> well, mate, that's that's fine. That's, you're in Victoria. It's okay. You know? Yeah, not so not so good at the time in no. Queensland still. No, no. Just no. 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Queen Victoria was right, you know, not to include them in the legislation. They've always been legal, you know, lesbians in the Commonwealth. Of that's There's been a drawback in that. Um that's one of the areas that globally I work in and there has been a drawback where increasingly, if you notice in countries, there has been more and more countries that have decriminalised um, same-sex sexuality between men who are assigned male at birth. However, there's been an increase in countries that have created laws that criminalise women who have sex with women. Mm. Part of that is is because... As countries review those laws, there has been a few countries that have gone, well, you're arguing on the context of equality. We are reviewing these laws and how we're going to make it equal is we're going to keep the criminalisation of men who have sex with men, but we're going to criminalise women who have sex with women. So could you... Any of these countries you can name? Um, so Solomon Islands is a close example. Right. Yeah. Mm. So where did you go after after the Newman got it? I came here. Here? Yeah. To Melbourne? I came to Melbourne. So Why? You came to Melbourne because you came out? or what? No, I came to Melbourne because they offered me a job um, doing more deinstitutionalisation work. So right. that was the time when they st- wanted to start to... Um, Remove day, mental health day centres and they were starting the initial discussions for the NDIS. Right. And, and what did your work entail? My work entailed working alongside people with lived experience mental health issues who were working in those, who were uh, accessing those community centres to find out what their needs were and what ways they would like to be engaged in the broader community, um, working with broader community stakeholders in making places safer and starting to develop a peer workforce. And who were you working for? Duda Gala at the time. Duda Gala, right. Mm. And how long did that last? Oh, a couple of years. A couple of years. Yeah. Was it interesting work, satisfying work? Or, or, or It was typical work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because that was exactly the same stuff I was doing in Queensland. Right, right. Although in Queensland I was engaged in much more interesting work, uh, for example, doing some of the work creating the first completely peer-led mental health services like Brook Red. Right. And what happened after that? Um, so I was doing some consulting. I decided to Ah, consultant. I like that. I've yeah. always wanted to be a consultant but never yeah. got quite round to it. <laughs> Kelly's a consultant now, you know. Well, I first met Kelly <laughs> yeah. when I was doing one of the little pieces of consulting work. Oh, yeah. you should have. Uh, tell us about it. What were you doing? <laughs> so um, I had been engaged to do some community engagement um, work around homelessness in Moreland. Mm. Yeah. And so, you met Kelly. What, yeah. Was she on the street or something? Um, I can't remember the really specifics, but I know that Kelly was there. I know that you were a peer worker, I think, in that space. I was with the Homeless Persons Union at the time. Yeah, yeah. she was no peer worker. She didn't get paid. And, um, <laughs> yeah, there was an, a great event put on at Moreland Town Hall um, and I was really taken um, by Lana, yeah, from the get-go, um, the way that she incorporated this idea about storytelling and using stories to... Mm. Yeah. I haven't got the right words at the moment. Yeah, so what that process was called was story harvesting, harvesting all the different types of stories that people had and being able to consolidate them and make sense of them and think mm. about, well, mm. what are the... What are the issues that we're needing to deal with here that different people have coming from different areas and doing Mm. it through a story harvesting process? And so they're sharing, I guess, their lived experiences, um, but also um, creating an opportunity for those people to be able to know and understand what the other types of stories are. So consultancy work, Mm. how do you get known? 
how, how do you how do you get work? It's difficult because you're on your own, or have you got you're part of a, a, a cooperative or a group? Or so I I'm known through previous pieces of work that I've done. This is through your publications as well as your work. Yeah. And what type of publications? You've talked about you've done publications. So, for example, and and going on about story, um, I'm actually quite well known internationally in terms of working on LGBT and working in international development and humanitarian contexts. And so there's a piece of work called Down by the River where we use Talanoa, traditional Pacific storytelling methodology, to gain people's understandings of their experience of LGBT people's experiences um, in uh, post-cyclone Winston. So what happened to them? What were their experiences? Could they access humanitarian aid after cyclone Winston? So Mm -hmm. this was Fiji-based. And then that report. Um, I've done pieces of research looking at the intersections of women and LGBT activists in Tanzania, Tonga, Sri Lanka and St. Lucia. Um, hang, on, on the- hang on, hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on, Why St. Lucia? Because that's what the funders wanted, because that- they're all Commonwealth countries. Ah, mm. right. And did you notice any marked differences, let's say, between Tanzania and St. Lucia? Um, I think that there are marked differences in the way in which Rape is used as a torture mechanism towards people with diverse sexualities and genders in Tanzania by institutions such as the police and the justice system, where in St. Lucia the use of rape as a torture is more of a social um, discrimination. Mm. Uh, And that in St. Lucia... Activists are using the modality of working with police to change social norms. Um, I think they're quite different approaches. Um, I think that I'm highly critical of the police force as an institution run by the state in their uh, following laws that are state-based laws that could discriminate against underrepresented, underrepresented equity-deserving community members. Right. So in this type of work you do overseas, have you ever felt threatened? No. No. You, you've been accepted? Yeah. Even by the authorities? Often I'm not letting the authorities know that I'm there. Of course they'll know you're there. What do you mean they don't know you're there? What, you just turn up as on a tourist visa? Uh, you better not tell us just in case somebody <laughs> – I know nobody listens, but you never know. Um, because sometimes what I'm doing is doing research also at the same time, mm. focusing on women or people with disabilities. Right. And, and So you're not seen as a threat. Yeah. Yeah. And so I sometimes keep mm. some of the more contentious, in inverted commas, quote, uh, inverted some of the more contentious work, more secret. More secret. Oh, you have to. You yeah. have to. People don't seem to un- they don't understand how difficult it can be for people of diverse genders and sexualities in a lot of countries around the world. Mm. Now, so it's an interesting life, but mm. you're happy with it. I am. Mm. I'm happy that I get to do things that feel really meaningful for me. I'm happy that I'm respected enough in the industry that I get to do things that many other researchers don't get to do, like spend a long time in places, like Mm. my water sanitation and hygiene project in eastern Indonesia has been going on since 2018. Could you tell us about that one? Um, So that one is working with community members to understand um, what water sanitation and hygiene is and then to work within their community to change what they think are the, their highest priorities around water sanitation and hygiene. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the women's group there, um, they one of the women's groups that I'm working with, um, they we did a lot of work kind of unpacking it all and they said, 
Um, well, first of all, I assumed that they would want to focus on water and that they might want to focus on, say, for example, water tanks because the communities that I'm working in don't have um, running water into their houses, you know. So mm. my assumption is that, but I followed my participatory ideology around that and um, then after this time I said, what do you want to work on? And they said sanitation. And I was like, okay, that's great, right. but yeah. why? <laughs> Just so I understand. Um, and they said, well... We, were, we live in this place that we're very poor. There's lots of plastic and everything is packaged in very minute because people can only buy things in very minute um, quantities. Mm. And there's no sanitation service. And so there's plastic everywhere. And when rainy season comes, it kind of washes all of the plastic into these open drains that they have. And at parts where they're not open, it all blocks up and the water fills up. Their kids play in the open drains and water because they're kids um, because there's all that water, malaria and mosquitoes. Mm. You know, these women can't afford to take their kids to the doctor. They can't afford any malaria drugs and so forth. So everyone gets really sick. Um, the water builds up, builds up the pressure and finally it pushes all of the rubbish and all of the gunk out over their rice paddy fields, which is where they earn money mm. and also provide for their own food. So in the rice paddy fields, they grow fish, all the fish die, so the women don't have protein for themselves and their families. Um, the rice doesn't grow so well and so not only do they have less to sell, they have less to eat and they're having to buy more food um and so that was a really perfect example of you know the first year of going okay this is what we're going to do and then through that process them me facilitating opportunities for them to decide what steps they want to take next so for example at one point they said we want to build these bins in public so people put the rubbish and I'm like yeah but what about this or that and it's like no you you know this is what we've decided we want to do and so they build these, they organise these big empty oil barrels to be made into bins and people to put them in different places and they'd created this song that was essentially, if you're happy, you're not, put your rubbish in the bin, but in their local dialect. Mm. Put it on, you know, and everyone's like, yay! And they fill the rubbish bins up, but the rubbish still goes everywhere. And so then they had to think of the next step. Okay, so... What we're actually missing isn't rubbish bins, it's actually sanitation services. And then going through that process of advocating, of, you know, learning from mistakes of these bikes always breaking down and which other bikes that we can get and all sorts of things. And So now this is obviously it's an intense interaction. Mm. Language. How do you resolve the language barrier? I have a – I speak – Sedika Bahasa Indonesia, oh, very oh. small Bahasa Indonesia, mm. but I have translators. Mm. You have translators, and yeah. that's part that's part of the deal when you go across. Yeah. All right, and uh, where do you live when you're there? Um, in in the local towns. Right. Yeah. And what's that like? Um, I think it is what it is. You know, it's not five-star hotels. They don't have five-star hotels. There's no swimming pools. There's oh, you're kidding. No, isn't, none of this. Isn't, isn't it all um, like Bali? You know, they've got no, goodness, no? No. five-story hotels, air no, conditioning, no. bars. Certainly no air conditioning. <laughs> certainly no. Um, so, but I think that I'm, I'm pretty normalised. I'm pretty fine right, with that. Mm. But do you ride a bicycle? In I it? don't. No, you're very I smart. You're very have smart. Have scooters. You have ridden. Sc do you put your helmet on? I do. Oh, absolutely. Very, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. All right. So that takes up a lot of your time. What are the things you're doing these days? These days, so I'm still doing research work. I'm still working with under-marginalised communities. I'm still working in really kind of specific thematic areas, not, oh, human rights, but water sanitation and hygiene or social protection or things like that. Um, I'm doing a lot of work, I guess, trying to teach people these skills that I've developed over a lifetime. 
Um, so, so are they, these grants from non-government organisations or...? Mostly. Mostly. Sometimes government organisations like DFAT or USAID. DFAT. Yeah. Ah. And so they're involved in a little bit of work there in Indonesia or a lot of work or...? Um, DFAT and Indonesia have very strong relationships. Oh. Um, probably one of the strongest in outside of the Pacific because DFAT's mostly focused on the Pacific. Right. And how about your own personal life? How's that going these days? Um, oh, you don't have to tell us the details. No, no, no. no just generally, generally. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know... I think it's like many mm. middle-aged women. Um, I still have two kids at home. Right. They're adults. But yes. I'm, even though they're adults, I'm still rousing on them to clean up after themselves. Oh, they're still at home. Yes, um, yes. We know that. A lot know, of people know that these days. Yeah. And they're not going to leave because they won't be able to afford the rent. Yeah. And it just goes on and on. So I think it's pretty typical of someone mm. my age who's a single parent mm. um, to be juggling work to be juggling kids and home, to be juggling cleaning up the backyard, juggling, you know, meeting up with your, you know, f group of close friends so that you have some social connections. I'm one of the hosts of PX Fano. Excuse me, excuse me, ex excuse me. Could you explain what's this PX Fano? What, what, what's all this stuff? So PX, PX Fano. What is it? Is it a new reggae group or a... So PX Fano is a 3CR program on Saturdays at 1.30. You're, you're kidding. And it is Australia's only Queer Pacifica radio show. Yay. And that's – why did you call it that? I didn't call it that. Well, why do they call it that? I have no idea. I forgot to ask. I've come on recently. What do you mean you've come on recently? Aren't you, aren't you a 3CR stalwart or an ornament on the station's Christmas tree? No, not no, at all. You're just a recent – Convert. I am. How come? How come you're here wasting your time? A talented woman like you wasting your time <laughs> at a community radio station. What's going on? Um, because I'm asked, because I love story, because I'm always looking for opportunities to contribute to my community and make the mm. world a better place. And also because I don't want to only be focusing on places elsewhere, I think that it would be really hypocritical and disingenuous of me not to say that actually we need to be doing work in our own communities as well. And regarding work in your own community through uh, the radio, through CR here, um, do you have group sessions? I don't mean like that. I mean, you know, get-togethers, cultural events. Do you get involved in that type yeah, of stuff? Yeah, so we just had Miss Fafafini recently. Miss what? Miss Victoria Fafafini. And what? Fafafini. How, fa fa how come I wasn't invited? I have no idea. Yeah. I know you you are you are disappointed. I'm very disappointed. <laughs> so, um, Fafafini is a Samoan term, mm -hmm. which is for people assigned to male at birth who have feminine characteristics. Mm -hmm. We had Latoya on oh, the yes. show yeah, uh, yeah. this year or last year. Do you remember? Yeah, last year. Yeah. How could I forget Latoya? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Miss Fafafini Victoria, and it was so good. Mm -hmm. I have to say, it was lots of fun. There was a lot of kind mm -hmm. of inadvertent political kind of. You know, like one of the Miss Fafafini contestants, and she was doing the swimsuit thing, pulling out, like, you know, the Twinkie yeah. um, sweets, pulling them out of her bra and eating them, which mm. has a particular kind of political thing from in the queer community. Um, <laughs> so it was lots of fun. And also just it was so amazing to be around so many other Pacific Islanders mm. Um, a whole huge room of them and Pacific Islanders that were there to celebrate queer mm. culture. And it wasn't just, you know, queer people. It was mums and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and nieces mm. and nephews. Mm. And, you know, as Pacific Islanders, we are really, we're at all possible. It's so important to be connected to family and it was That's just right. such an amazing celebration. Well, it is, yeah. Look, I, I, my late wife was Torres Strait Islander and... Uh, when I, we first came to Melbourne, the only Torres Strait Islander visitors we get would be men who were gay, and I used to think that all gay, 
all Torres Strait Islanders were gay, but obviously <laughs> they used to come here because this is where they could actually be themselves. It's a large city mm. and a small island. It's very difficult. Yeah. And I assume it's the same if your community, Pacific Islanders, coming to a large city. But... Well, I think that the Fafa, I think in Samoa there is mm. a cultural acceptance of gender diversity as mm. a part of tradition. Mm. And I think Samoa is really special because it not only has Fafa Fini, but it has an organisation dedicated to Fa'atama, mm. which is assigned female at birth masculine. Right people mm. um, but I think that colonialism has a lot to answer for in the you know breakdown of traditional queer communities mm. but I think it's also important because we in general Australian culture and particularly white Australian culture there's this assumption that we are much more progressive than mm. others um, and we do that through our development projects um, etc but when we're when I'm in local communities, often that experience of acceptance is there. Yeah, because because in the Torres Strait, it's blanket Christianity since the coming of the light in 1879, and obviously they were responsible for saving the Torres Strait Islanders from extinction. But at the same time, they imposed those beliefs. So a lot of the people have come down have come down from a not a Torres Strait Islander background such but a strong Christian background yeah. and that's what as you're saying they had their own cultures yeah. and I did ways. a really mm. interesting piece of research recently on mm. religious disaster narratives and how LGBT people in Fiji are being blamed for disasters through different interpretations of the Bible mm. um, including the story of Noah and you know the flooding of the earth to get rid of all the sinners and that um you know, the reason why the earth is literally flooding, as Pacific Islanders can rightfully interpret, mm. um, is because of the sin, because those queer people took the rainbow and that's what God gave as a symbol to say he would never flood the earth again and all of these things. But working with the community over two years in this project and being able to unpack stories, do narrative power analysis on stories, to be able to create the opportunity to figure out what the real issues between people were and to create new stories. Um, it was more about thinking that there was a disconnect within traditional culture than there was about mm, Christianity. But right. Christianity was the impetus for just trying to understand and navigate the world that you're in and using that because that's all that you've had. That's right, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming into the studio. Look, uh, you're going solo this Saturday, are you? I am. Yes. Tell us, so uh, what's, what's the what, details? Uh, well, yeah, tell us the topic. Come on. So, actually, because um, we've had a few issues with um, interviewees, I'm actually <laughs> going to interview my son, uh -huh. my eldest son, who is also. Obviously, being my son, Pacific Islander, but also queer, he's actually mm. a trans man. So we're mm. going to talk about what it's like to grow up as a queer Pacifica person with a queer mother mm. and what that means and also that intersection of indigeneity as well because he's both... Fijian and Indigenous Australian. Mm. What time? 1.30. p.m. here on 3CR. I hope you don't stuff up the technical bits, Lana, because everybody will be listening, okay? So <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Thanks for joining us, Lana. Thank you. You're in company now. Composite of north and south I did on the map somewhere But it's not exactly what you planned How am I gonna find you now? A sense of direction so counterintuitive It's ruining any chance we had
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.